quick, 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 quick poll. Um, do you remember, adults, do you remember your favorite teacher? I'm not going to ask kids, do you have your favorite teacher? Because you probably don't. Um, uh, 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 amazing, amazing teachers are, are rare. It's, it's rare to, to have that teacher that you're actually fond of. Uh, um, good teachers can have a way of motivating you in, in just crazy, profound ways. Um, when I was 15 years old, I was, I was transferred to an, uh, 15, when I was um, in fifth grade, rather, I was transferred to an alternative school for at-risk boys in Detroit, Michigan, and, and I met Mr. Washington. So a little bit about my story. I, I, I grew up a uh, single-parent home. My father was a heroin addict. My father was a deadbeat. I've seen him five times, I think. So, and all the men in my family were alcoholics. So, so Mr. Washington was the very first functional adult male that I had a relationship. So, and, and Mr. Washington was, he was intelligent. He was ele- uh, intelligent. He was articulate. He was educated. And his very presence commanded respect. I, I, I never met a man like this in my life. And, and my second favorite teacher was my pastor. Uh, when I became a Christian, I, I sat under the ministry of Herbert Singleton, and he modeled loving his wife and holiness and uh, a reliance and uh, reverence for the word of God in ways that I still marvel at and in ways that I still emulate. This letter right here, 1 Thessalonians, is a, a letter from the spiritual teacher to, to his loving Students, you can just hear the love, the fondness, the affection, the, the, the affinity that, 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 that Paul had for these believers in Thessalonica. These were new believers, and, and they had questions, and Paul wrote this letter to answer their questions and, and to see them grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so Acts 17 tells us that Paul and Silas uh, visited the temple in Thessalonica for, for three weeks in a row, and they begin to see people uh, come to know and follow Jesus through, uh, uh, um, through the preaching of his word, some Jews and some God-fearing Greeks. So, so as a result of this, 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 this little baby church plant began to grow, and to the point that Paul and Silas had to run out at night because a riot broke out. An angry mob were looking for them. So Paul's, his time was cut off with them, and he was, he, he was very fond of them. So he wrote this letter just to encourage them, to edify them. And uh, so chapter 2 begins, Paul is expressing his motives, his, his, his uh, view of ministry, and his deep concern and fondness for the saints here in Thessalonica. So, so here, here's my big idea. Here, here's what I want you to take away from this message. Um, it's all about the mission, not me. It's all, it's all about the mission. It's not about me. Um, just not to, to soapbox too much. Um, this is the soapbox. Every now and then I'll put one foot on the soapbox and do that. But, but, but we, we've, many of us have, have, have taken this view of Christianity that, okay, now that I'm a follower of Jesus, that it's about me. It's about my personal edification. It's about my personal growth, and, and that's true to a very certain extent, but the mission is all about proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about me. So let's jump into, and you can talk back to me. I'm, a, uh, I'm still a, a black storefront preacher at heart, so you can talk back. <laughs> you can talk back to me if you want to. So, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, and I'm reading from the CSB, um, so that may throw you off a little bit. I hope it don't throw you off a little bit. Um, so, so you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without results. On the contrary, 
we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi. As you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite great opposition. So, so Paul is reminding them that there was fruit, there, that, that this ministry was effective. There was fruit. People were coming to know and follow Jesus Christ during their time in Thessalonica, despite it being a very short time. And, and despite suffering opposition, despite the, the persecution, Paul and Silas boldly continue to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and facing literal life-threatening situations, Paul and Silas were faithful messengers and ministers of the gospel. But notice this. P- Paul says that, that in the face of the opposition, in, in the face of the persecution, they were actually emboldened to declare the gospel. These men actually were fueled by opposition. They weren't frozen by it. Often when we are opposed, when, when, when we get a sarcastic comment, when we get our faith questioned, often we freeze. But Paul says they were fueled. They were emboldened. We were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of the great opposition. Their witness was solidified and and strengthened by the opposition, not shaken by it. This is kind of counterintuitive. They they, they didn't go into a shell. They didn't say, well, well, you can believe what you believe and I can believe what I believe. They were emboldened to declare the Lord Jesus Christ in the face and because of the opposition. By the grace of God, through the power of the spirit, we can declare like Paul in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This, this spirit and power boldness, we see this in Acts chapter 4. The, the apostles were arrested. They were beaten and they prayed and the spirit fell and they said they spoke the word of God. What? Boldly. We can have this spirit empowered boldness. And it's crucial now. It's necessary now because culture is turning. The world is turning. Our places of work are turning. The, the, our neighbors are turning. Being a Christian used to be culturally accepted and even encouraged. We have to have this spirit, empowered boldness. It's crucial. It's critical for our gospel witness because we are going to be opposed. We are going to be rejected. We're going to be ostracized. We're going to be blind for believing in the slain lamb of God. When we face hostility, when we face opposition in our places of work, in our families, for the gospel's sake, do do, do you shrink back or do you stand firm? Next, Paul reminds them that their approach was pure. Their motives were pure. Verses 3 through 6. For our exhortation did not come from error or impurity in intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our heart. Verse 5, for we never use flattery speech as you know or had greedy motives as God is our witness. And we did not seek glory from people either from you or from others. So listen to, listen to Paul. Listen, listen to how he describes their approach. He says they didn't come with uh, impure motives or intent to deceive. They were approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. 
They spoke not to please man, but to please God. They, they never used flattery speech or had greedy motives. What is Paul saying? He said, our motives, our intent was from God and was to please God. Notice this. They weren't trying to manipulate. They weren't trying to use flattery words. They, they, they weren't trying to use compulsion. They didn't attempt to deceive people. They, they didn't just tell people what they wanted to hear. They didn't dull the edge of the gospel. They didn't seek to be elevated because of who they were as apostles. They didn't just add Jesus to their social or political ideology or agenda. There was a purity to Paul's motives and his message. I I, I believe that much of what we call being rejected by Jesus, um, excuse me, rejected for Jesus and rejected by others, I, I believe is actually people are actually rejecting our presentation of him. They're, they're not saying um, we don't want to hear about God. We don't want to hear the gospel. They're saying we don't want to hear it the way you're doing it. <laughs> what, what if your gospel presentation is so confusing and convoluted or watered down or too fluffy. What if that's the issue? Maybe they're not rejecting the gospel. Maybe they're just rejecting how you're presenting the gospel. What if people can't hear the gospel because you're too passionate about secondary issues, political views, other ideologies? What if all that is blocking out your gospel presentation? Paul said, we came with the word of God. We came, our motives were, 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 were pure. Our message was pure. We didn't come to tell you what you wanted to hear. We told you about a savior named Jesus Christ. Again, like, like Paul and Silas, we have to have a pure message and pure motives. If we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit sometimes we make it about us. We're not trying to win people to Jesus. We're trying to win them to our view, our ideology. We're trying to win them to us. We're trying to win an argument. Paul is saying that the mission is not about you. It's about Jesus. If we could just all be honest for a minute, there are times where we serve to get something in return. It could be affirmation. It could be acknowledgement. Paul said our motives were pure. How often do we serve? How how, how often do we do something and then try to snatch a little bit of glory from Jesus? A little bit of acknowledgement, a little bit of affirmation. Paul said, we came and we presented the gospel. Our motives were pure. Our message was pure. How often do we not tell people the truth, but tell them what they want to hear and not what they need to hear? Again, the the mission is not about us. It's all about spreading the fame, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and advancing his kingdom. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is having uh, one of his little meetings with his disciples and John and James come to the side of Jesus and say, hey, when you return, can one, one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? And then the other 10 hear this and they were irate. So now we have the 12 men who knew Jesus more than anybody making it about them. The the, the ones who knew him, the the ones who saw him walk on water and feed 5,000 people, the the ones who knew the Messiah were making it about them. 
Jesus said, the greatest among you will be a servant, and who, whoever wants to be first must be a slave to them all. Then Jesus says something amazing. Jesus says something amazing in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The, the, the ultimate act of service, the, the ultimate act of selflessness was the creator himself dawning humanity and rescuing his creation from doom and despair through his death. Through the death of Jesus uh, for us in our place, the suffering servant saved us. He saved the selfish. He saved the self-centered through the ultimate act of service. Let's keep, let's keep, let's, let's keep it moving. Uh, 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 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, although we could have been burdened as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we uh, were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become that dear to us. Notice this. Paul is saying that, that, that his ministry to the people in Thessalonica was, was marked by gentleness, was marked by grace, was marked by patience, was marked by tender care. He, he went so far to describe, and, and, and Paul was a man's man. Paul was a dude. Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't no soft dude. Paul described literally stoned, left for dead, bitten by snakes, in prison. Paul was a rough customer, and he described his ministry, his approach to a nursing mother. There's nothing more gentle and patient and tender than a mother caring for her newborn. Notice this. Paul is saying, Paul is saying that, that, that his approach to ministry, his ministry was like a nursing mother, not an older sibling. Anybody got, anybody got some older, or some of y'all older siblings? Yeah, y'all, y'all something else. Um, Paul, is, Paul is saying, I, I, I was like a nursing mother, gentle, caring, gracious, patient. I wasn't like an older sibling. See, I have five kids, um, Pray for me. Um, four girls and one boy. Uh, I know, right? I, to, I, told, I told my daughters, you get a wedding or college. You ain't getting both. Uh, choose wisely. So, 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 so my oldest daughter, I love, I love her dearly. I, I love this child dearly. Um, she's, she's smart and she's, she's really good with her siblings for the most part. But there's times when it's clear that she's the older sibling. There's times when her patience is short, she's harsh, and she lacks grace. I'm glad she's not here. Um, there, there have been times where I'll come in the, I'll come in the kitchen, and I'll say, and I'll, and I'll be telling the kid, okay, this is what you need to do. And she'll come right behind me and add more things. And you also need to do this. There's times where my oldest is more strict than me. And I'm like, hey, lighten up. Lighten up. They, they deserve a little screen time. Let them lighten up. But, but, how, but how, often, how often does our discipleship look like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son? Judgmental, hypercritical, impatient, guilt and shame driven, 
unrealistic expectations, performance-based, harsh, lacking grace. Paul said, I was like a nursing mother. I was tender. I was gentle. I, 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 I didn't rush. Jesus, in sending out the 70 in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as a serpent and gentle or innocent as doves. Can you honestly say that when, you, when you're discipling someone or when you are engaging in evangelism uh, or, or your attempts to reach someone, is it grounded in grace and gentleness? In my ministry context, again, I, I live in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I realized a long time ago that we have to handle people with care because they're fragile. Without exaggeration, that, that we, we encounter people who are stuck in generational poverty, all types of abuse, all types of parental neglect, various undiagnosed mental and emotional issues. Oh, and by the way, they're dead in sin. This is my ministry context. I I, I realize that we have to be patient. We have to be gracious. And we have to celebrate each little step because conversion may be slow. Okay, there have been people we walked with nine months, a year, and finally started to see a little, a little bud of fruit. Is your, is your approach to evangelism, is your approach to that, that coworker, that agnostic, that arrogant uh, atheist coworker, is your approach like a, a mother feeding her infant, or is it like me attempting to get my seven-year-old to eat her vegetables? What if, what if what if we handled people like fine china and not disposable plates? What, what, if, what if we realize that this person is broken, this person has been neglected, this person has been rejected, this person has been ostracized, this person has been hurt and abused, and we handled them like fine china and not a disposable plate? Paul said we were tender, we were patient, we were gentle. Just imagine if we showed people a fraction of the immeasurable patience and grace we've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read verse 8 again. It said, we cared for you so much. We cared for you so much that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become that dear to us. Paul is saying that Silas and himself were so fond, they loved these people so much that they held nothing back. Their love motivated them to share their entire lives with these people. Please hear this. Real mission is more than your message. The gospel saves. It's the gospel that saves. But real mission is sharing your life. Is opening your life. It's your message, but it's also your life as well. Real mission is about sharing both the gospel and your lives with people. He said, we loved you so much. We gave you the word of God. We gave you the truth of Jesus. We gave you the gospel, but we also gave you us. Listen to how Acts 2 describes this, the infant church. He says they, were, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, they had all things in common, and they, they devoted to meeting themselves in the, meeting with themselves in, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. 
This wasn't an appointment. This wasn't an appointment. This wasn't a time and place. These people lived life together. Again, the church is not a time and place. Real mission is more than just something we do when someone says, okay, we have our meeting. We have our this. No, these people loved each other. They lived their lives together. Paul said, we were so fond of you. We shared our lives and the gospel. True discipleship is lovingly opening your life and sharing your life with other people as well as the gospel. He says, we, we were pleased to share not only the gospel, but our own lives. The unfortunate reality, to say amen or ouch, the, the unfortunate reality is so many of us are enslaved with so many other things, we can't find time to share our lives. Crowded schedule, personal leisure, living for comfort, extracurricular activities, other obligations, and just plain disinterest have led so many to close up their lives from the community of God. It's not about a time and place. It's about living your life with God's people on mission. So what, what led them to share their lives? What, what led Paul to, and, and Silas to, to share their lives and live on mission? Love. Love. He said, we were so fond. We cared so deeply for you. We gave you the message and our lives. They, they, the, the, them opening their lives was motivated by love. And we see this clearly with Paul and Silas, but we see this even more clearly with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ modeled this sacrificial love. Listen to, to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians, uh, 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 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15 for the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for the one who died for them and was raised. Catch this. We're motivated to love. We're motivated to serve. We're motivated to give our lives because of our loving Savior, not obligation. It's because Jesus laid it all down. We lay it all down at his feet. Friends, this is the gospel message. The son of God loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. The undeserving, the wicked, the rebellious, he laid down his life for us. He loved us so much that he lived sinlessly. He fulfilled the law of God because we could never do it. He loved us so much that he accepted the judgment, the wrath of God that we earned. And gave us mercy, grace, and forgiveness instead. Jesus loved us so much. He loved us so much that he welcomed us into the family of God. He covered us in his righteousness through his sacrificial death and resurrection. And as a response, as a response to all that we have, all that we are, through Jesus Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. We live for him and we live for the community. We live for him and we live for the family of God. Because Jesus died for us, we die to ourselves. 
Because Jesus died for us and gave us new life, we die to ourselves. And we now live for his glory. We now live for his fame. We now live for his community. Because Jesus gave everything he had to save us. We give all that we have and live for him. Who are you sharing your life with? I'm not asking you, are you in a gospel community? I'm not asking, do you come to prayer? Who are you sharing your life with? Who are you spiritually investing in? Who's spiritually investing in you? Let's keep moving. Verse 17. For as for us, brothers and sisters, as we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desire and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Paul is continuing to gush. He's continuing to go over the top with his love and his affection and his desire to be with them. But he concludes that there was satanic interference in the way. That, that, that word hindered there is a, is a military word. It's describing the attack of an enemy or how we build a trap to uh, trap our opponents. Paul is saying there was spiritual warfare. There, there was satanic interference that prevented me from coming to be with you. Paul was keenly aware that, we had, that he had a real enemy who sought to halt and hinder the work of God. Now, if this was a reality for Paul, why do we forget this? If Paul said there is an enemy, a real life enemy who wants to stop, who wants to halt, who wants to hinder the gospel advance, why do we forget this? How often do we forget that we have a real life enemy who hates us and hates the mission? Ephesians 6 10, 11, and 12 says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh or blood, or, or, but, but against rulers and against authorities, against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Brothers and sisters, especially those who are getting baptized today, when you believe this gospel message, when you kneel at the foot of the cross, when you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus, when, when you uh, elect to engage in the mission of God, you are inherently engaging in spiritual warfare. Peter says he's like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. When you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to the gospel, when you say yes to the mission, you're saying yes to spiritual warfare. When we are attempting to rescue people from the pits of hell, you make yourself a target. When when you are attempting to plant and replant and multiply churches, you are disturbing the kingdom of darkness. You're engaging in spiritual warfare. When we began to plant our church, 
just the amount of spiritual warfare that began to happen, the, the attacks of my family, the attacks of health, the attacks of people around us, people seeking to harm us, people seeking to steal from us, people seeking to break in our home, just the amount of spiritual warfare that began to happen was unreal. Last year, uh, we had a, a young lady, she began to come to, to our service, and, and, and I just thought she was mentally disturbed. And she would begin to make loud noises and all these different things. And I had a girl say, very discerning by the, by the spirit, this young lady, she said, I think, I think she's possessed. I said, no, 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 I just kind of chalked it off. You know, yeah, no big deal. You know, she's, she, just, she just mentally, she just has some mental issues. Later that week, she called CPS. She called the police on leaders in our church and said that they were assaulting their children. And CPS and the police showed up to this house to snatch these children out of the house. When you say yes to Jesus, when you desire to plant churches, when, you, when you're trying to push back darkness, you're signing up for spiritual warfare. So what's our weapon? How, how do we fight against this, uh, this spiritual warfare? Paul continues here in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18. And pray, novel idea, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Prayer is so crucial. Prayer is so crucial. Prayer is so crucial to withstand the, the counterattacks of the enemy as we seek to live on mission. Let us continue to cover the missionaries, the brothers that are going on this mission trip, the brothers and sisters. Let us continue to cover them in prayer because the enemy seeks to hinder the work of God. How much time do you spend praying for the mission? How much time do you spend praying for pastors and church planners and missionaries all across the globe, all across Nebraska, the, the, who are pushing back darkness? How much time do you spend praying, praying for them? Do you regularly pray for the gospel to push back darkness here in Bellevue and Oklahoma and all throughout Nebraska? Is that a prayer of yours? Yes, Satan is active. That's bad news, but the good news is he will not succeed. Jesus said, the very gates of hell will not hinder the advance of the kingdom. Despite Satan's attempt, uh, attempts and attacks to hinder, he is still a defeated foe because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, 14 says, by canceling the record of debt, he stood against us. With its legal demands, he, he nailed it to the cross, disarming the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Through his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus disarmed and dismantled the power of Satan once and for all. Through his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus gave us victory over sin, over Satan, and over shame. And one day, the Lord Jesus Christ will completely vanquish the enemy and establish his kingdom on earth. I long for that day. I long for that day. In conclusion, 
I'm turning the corner. I'm not quite my driveway yet. I'm turning the corner. Verse 19 and 20. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Notice this. Paul's hope, his joy, his crown were the people. Again, the mission is not about you. It's not about me. It's about the fame and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's about his kingdom expanding. It's about people coming from the the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Paul said his joy was knowing that his sacrifices had eternal ramifications. Serving in kids' ministry has eternal ramifications. Serving in the nursery has eternal ramifications. Leading, leading a small group, these things may seem very small, but they have eternal ramifications. Because of those efforts, people are coming to know and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. His hope was in knowing that he would spend all eternity worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ with these people. Please be encouraged and find much joy in knowing that your labor is not in vain. People will know Jesus. People will surrender. People will be baptized. Churches will be planted because the kingdom cannot be stopped. Find joy and knowing that the one day the attacks of the enemy will cease once and for all. Find great joy in knowing that, that, that if we give our lives away, we'll live throughout all eternity in Christ's kingdom. Since Paul references the Lord's return, I'm going to close here. Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hand, and they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. One day, the striving will cease. One day, the hardship will be over. And one day, we'll stand and we'll worship the Lord Jesus Christ as one body. People from Nebraska worshiping with people from Detroit. Isn't that amazing? That one day we'll be able to see the lamb face to face and worship him together. This is is worth giving your life for. This is worth giving your time for. This is worth giving your energy for. This is worth saying no to things that are good and fun and pleasant. This is worth it because the, the work of the ministry, the mission is adding people to this vast multitude. 